Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hello Australia and welcome to My Millennial Property. Emily Wallace here and I am writing solo today to bring you a special episode around the first home buying journey. So if you are a first home buyer currently or you're planning on being a first home buyer, this is certainly the episode for you. The idea of me going solo today comes off the back of John doing a solo episode. He was actually covering me while I had no voice a few weeks back. If you haven't listened to his episode though, and you're an investor, he covered off on an eight-point property investment strategy. That was episode 439. So if you haven't listened to that, I would highly encourage you to do so if you're more of an investor listener than a first home buyer. But look, I think you'll still pick up some value from today's conversation around the first home buying journey, what to be aware of, and I'm going to cover off on some questions. It's going to be in two parts. The first part is more talking through the journey and what to expect and some key items to be aware of. The second part will be a culmination of answering some questions that came in the My Millennial Money Facebook group, as well as what came through my Instagram page as well. So strap in, get ready. I'm ready to do my best at writing solo today. Bear with me. Let's get into it. The very first thing I want to address with first home buying is the element of it being your first. The first time you do anything, you're not supposed to know what you're doing. That's the nature of it being a first time. And when we think about other activities we do in our life as a first, often we seek advice, education, assistance. We might have some lessons. Maybe it's a new hobby we're taking up. But often we don't assume knowledge. We actually seek out the resources that we need. And it's no different when it comes to buying your first home. Now, I do apologize. The word first is going to have a high tally count on today's episode, but it is the nature of a first home buyer episode. But the biggest thing I do want to reiterate is around this idea that you really aren't supposed to know it all and you need to be careful who you lean on for advice and for education around how to go about your first purchase. One of the biggest things that home buyers do struggle with is saving for a deposit and understanding their borrowing capacity and this is the fundamentals of actually being in a position to be ready to go out there and start browsing the market, attending open homes and potentially placing offers on properties. So a lot of people do ask me like, where do I even start? Like I'm a first home buyer. What What is the number one step I need to take to get me in the right direction? And to me, that really is getting a great mortgage broker on board to help understand your borrowing capacity, your serviceability, and also to understand what deposit you will require. A lot of people go about saving their deposit 
and then approaching a mortgage broker. And there's nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. It's that's fine. But to me, a more logical way to understand what you need to save is to understand what purchase price you're aiming for and reverse engineer it from there because that will help you understand what deposits required, what stamp duties are likely to be payable and also what serviceability you have in terms of a purchase price. A great first home buyer broker, someone who's first home buyer centric, will certainly be with you for the journey and you might reach out to them 12 months before you're even ready to start looking at properties. Some of them even have some tools around working out a goal of your savings for your deposit and certainly keep you informed as to what's happening with rates and the products that they're working with. So that would be the first step on the journey is to seek out a great broker who's there for the long haul. They're there to educate you and help you understand your deposit, your stamp duties required, and also the purchase price that you're aiming for. Once you've got that on board, it helps set up the framework for what's possible because it's a little bit like going in blind when you go to a shop. Let's say we're going to a dress shop and we've got a card, but we don't really know how much money's on that card. If we're just tapping and hoping for the best, we might not be able to afford what we've picked up. Whereas if we know the dollar figure, we can go in there confidently. We can look at things below our price point, at our price point, we can try and bargain. It's the same when you're house hunting. You really need to know what budget you're working with. And there's plenty of things that you can do in the lead up to actually having the deposit saved. Probably the biggest thing that I would be doing as a first home buyer in that process of saving the deposit and engaging the mortgage broker is just starting to look online and monitoring the market. What properties fall within my serviceability? You know, what are they selling for? Are they advertised at a certain price and they go well beyond that? Or am I actually seeing a bit of a discount in the area that I'm looking that prices are dropping or selling for less than what I thought? You can never know too much about the market. And some people do liken house hunting to a full-time job and to be honest, to do it probably is. But in your spare time, you can bring up an Excel spreadsheet, simply have a few columns, the address, the listed price and the sold price and potentially even a column in there that has your predicted sold price. It's a great way to understand if you're in tune with the market to compare your prediction versus the outcome And it will really equip you quite well when you're physically looking at properties and starting to consider placing offers. So in summary around the first step around saving the deposit and approaching a mortgage broker, there's things that you can be doing online such as monitoring the market through an Excel spreadsheet or Google sheet or whatever you want to do to keep a solid eye on the area that you're keen on. If, however, you are someone who is buying in a new area, or we actually uh, have come across quite a few listeners to the podcast who have had questions around moving to a new city and buying from the get-go. I'm personally always of the view that if you can rent somewhere before you buy, and I don't mean rent the exact property, but rent in the area before you commit to a purchase, that's always a benefit because you get a really good understanding of the area. And if it's somewhere you really want to be, If that choice is not available to you and you do need to commit to a purchase uh, entering a new space, I suggest you spend a lot of time in that suburb before putting pen to paper. So visiting the local cafes, the supermarket, uh, you might even have a family lunch there. You might walk around the park with your dog. You might even speak to the neighbours. Just get a sense of the community, 
A good hack is always a community Facebook page. They are the source of truth. I can tell you that much. <laughs> if you if you look up the postcode or the area of where you're looking to buy, I guarantee you there's a Facebook page. And on it, you'll find people giving away lemons, but you'll also find people complaining about, you know, break-ins or uh, unusual activity in the area or things that you need to be aware of. Facebook community groups are honestly such a good source of information. If you can get yourself in one of those, I highly, highly recommend it. But if you are someone who's moving to a new area, make sure you gather as much information as you can. If you're in a fortunate position to be buying in an area that you currently live in or you have lived in previously, then I think the biggest thing is to ensure that that area is definitely within reach And the only way you'll know that is by doing plenty of market research and being on top of what the listed prices are versus the sold prices in the area. The other thing that a lot of first home buyers do need to consider, not only the area that they're buying in and making sure that that's achievable, but a lot of people do question whether they're buying for the short or the long term. Usually what that will translate to is either a purchase that is more, let's take a two-bedroom villa unit with a small courtyard that services most young couples or even singles for a five to seven-year period versus the next step up, which is usually minimum three-bed house, potentially freestanding or maybe even an oversized townhouse uh, with a garage, good-sized yard, good access to amenity. A lot of people do query whether they should commit well within their means to option number one or should they stretch themselves now to actually get the long-term home as their first purchase. Now, there is no right or wrong answer to this question. It's just something that pops up a lot. And if you're grappling with it, just know that a lot of people do grapple with it uh, as to what their first purchase really should be. Probably the biggest thing to consider option one versus option two, is what is going to be the potential value add you could make to option one to then springboard you into an option two? Because if you're buying somewhat of an entry-level property, you probably can't just rely on the market to go up and do its thing to then have enough equity or you know sale proceeds if you sell out to then go to property number two, which is usually an upsize. That's generally how people work. They uh, go from a two to a three-bedroom not everybody, but I would say a large majority. So understanding, is there any value add I can do to that property to help springboard me into the next one? Is it really going to see me out for the next five to seven years or am I actually going to be moving in just a few years time? Maybe it's only three years away. And if that's the case, how can I add value to it beyond the market trends and whether that's hopefully upwards or potentially downwards? And maybe there's Uh, evidence to suggest that I could sell at a loss. That's not ideal. So a bit of long-term planning behind the purchase is extremely important for your personal circumstances. There are situations where I have seen first-home buyers go ahead and purchase the house a little bit further out that's got a bit more land, that's got a few more bedrooms and will serve them for the long term. The benefit, if you have the capability to do that, is you don't have buying and selling costs along the way. I think people often forget that it's not just the purchase price, it's also the stamp duties on top of that, as well as any legal fees, potentially buyer's advocate fees, also um, building and pest and the like. So your cumulative cost, 
versus uh, the sale that price that you actually get can be quite uh, tight if you sell in a, in a short time frame. Whereas if you hold it a bit longer term and you buy for the future, that property might see you out for a lot longer and it might actually see you save money even though it feels like you're spending more money up front. Hopefully that makes sense what I'm trying to articulate there. But basically it is something that people grapple with to buy their five to seven year property versus their 10 to 15 year property. Do take some time, particularly if you're in a relationship, if you're buying as a couple, take some time to plan. What does the future hold? And I know you can only go so far, who knows really what's going to come across in the future, but a broad plan of where you'd like to see yourself and what you want for yourself and your you know, future potential family as well, that will dictate where you ultimately buy and what you ultimately spend as well. So we've spoken about deposits and borrowing capacities and getting a broker on early. We've spoken about the area and understanding, if you can, to rent in the area before you buy or leverage those Facebook groups or leverage the neighbours, intel from local cafes and restaurants. And I've also spoken about considering the short term versus the long term. One practical thing I want to touch on before I head into some Q&A is actually around who you take to open homes. It's very interesting being a fly on the wall and being an observer sometimes when I go to open homes or open for inspections and I see first home buyers take a friend or a family member, someone who might have somewhat of an interest in the property purchase, but they're not actually buying it themselves. And they have a lot of opinions. Now, it is only natural that you generally turn to friends and family for advice and information. But I would query and I would ask you to, to think and reflect, is it always beneficial taking someone who maybe they haven't ever bought a property before and they don't know very much or maybe it's mum and dad who their last purchase was 20 years ago and they're really not up to speed with the property market. I think who we turn to for advice in the home buying space is really important And it's really key to make sure that whoever you do take to those open for inspections has your best interests in mind. Too many times I've seen parents be very negative about the properties that their children are looking at, particularly in the apartment space. And I know there's probably some people nodding their heads along to this. You'll go to an apartment with mum and dad and they're like, oh, you can't possibly live in this shoebox. It's way too small. You know, back in my day, this amount of money bought you X amount of property and it's not the case anymore. So that can actually be quite an adaption for some parents, to be honest with you. I have seen parents walk through apartments and being like, you can't possibly live in this. Well, unfortunately, particularly in the major capital cities, if you want location and lifestyle, you're usually going to have to compromise on space somewhere. So just be mindful of who you take and what commentary they provide and make sure they're not putting a negative spin on the the process for you. It's an exciting time and you should be super proud and super excited that you've reached this milestone of even getting to the point of being ready to purchase your first home. So make sure you're sharing that with people who also share the joy of that with you and are not putting uh, a negative spin on what you're trying to achieve. Those who've experienced that will know what I'm talking about. Um, Those who are yet to go through the home buying journey, um, just be mindful of it as you go. Before I take a break and head into some Q&A, I just want to touch on one final item that is really crucial in the first home buying process. And that's actually once you've bought the property. Well, it's actually right before you buy the property. It's understanding your buffers that come into place for things like furniture or repairs 
or removalists, moving costs can be expensive. These items that actually occur outside of the deposit that you've saved, outside of the loan that you're about to take out, they're additional items that you really need to factor in to have a buffer. And more generally, I often find when people move into a property, within the first three months, you'd be lucky if nothing goes wrong. Like usually there's a leaking tap or there's a aircon unit that needs servicing or there's a roof that needs attention, the gutters that need attention. Make sure you have buffers in place. And I'm talking more likely outside of an emergency fund, something that is specific for your first three to six months of living in the property for all the items you need to furnish the home and any additional maintenance that might pop up because there's too many times I've heard of buyers being caught out without that buffer and they really do suffer and have to sacrifice other things to make it up. So be mindful of a buffer. I'm not going to give ballpark figures because it is very much a personal circumstance item, particularly depending how much furniture you already own versus how much you need, but it's more an item line that you should really consider when you're mapping out your expenditure for buying your first home. So in summary, getting a broker on board early is key and understanding the deposit you require and the borrowing capacity that you have. Understanding the area you're going to buy in, particularly if it's a foreign area, to you and what that means in terms of livability and can you rent there first before you commit to a purchase. Thinking about buying for the short term versus the long term and the difference in the purchase price and lifestyle and long-term effects of that decision. So your five to seven year plan versus your 10 to 15 year plan and understanding the importance of who you involve in the home buying process when you go to open homes. Make sure those people are on your side, really, really key. And finally, uh, talking about the buffers that are required and certainly need to be considered when you're buying your first home beyond your deposit and your savings. Go and take a quick break. And when we come back, I am going to collate the questions that have come through. Thank you for those who have submitted them. Uh, I'll get through as many as I can in just a moment. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. 
Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, so I'm looking through the questions and there is a common thread around the potential schemes that each state has for first home buyers. John and I are going to do an episode specifically on all the incentives that you need to be aware of. We'll break it down state by state and also try and provide some resources in the show notes of that episode as well. So keep posted for that. That's actually probably a whole episode worthy of understanding all the different schemes that are currently in play. And maybe it's something that we actually review on an annual basis so that you have updated information depending on when you've found the podcast and when you're listening. So please keep posted for a future date on that episode. It'll be all around the incentives that you're eligible for, uh, state by state. And there are some really good schemes that can help first home buyers. So it's important that people are aware of them. The first question, it's a series of questions actually from Samuel McPherson. Thank you, Samuel. This is from the My Millennial Money Facebook group. Side note, if you're not part of the My Millennial Money Facebook group, please jump on in there. It's where we ask people to submit their questions. It's also where people share some amazing stories of what they've done with their savings, with their money in general, with their career, Uh, a lot of pay rise stories, which I love reading, Uh, and certainly a lot of home buying stories as well. So certainly jump in there if you're not already a member. Uh, But back to Samuel. Samuel has asked a series of questions, but I'm going to pick out a couple that are relevant. Uh, One of them is around tips for saving a deposit faster. A lot of people do struggle. It's the reality and honestly the biggest barrier to getting into the property market is saving for a deposit faster. I guess uh, particularly if you are employed, there is only so much capacity you have to earn and to save a percentage of your salary. And there's only so many hours in the day. I mean, I know a lot of people have a side hustle these days. A lot of people work two jobs. A lot of people spend a lot of hours at one job. I think the biggest thing is to understand that whilst saving for a deposit is important, If you want to tick your property goal, you also need to live your life. We have in the past had some listeners on the show talking about how they save for their deposit faster or manage to um, grow their savings account quicker than they anticipated. And a lot of it is around sacrifice. So, you know, if you're in shift work, maybe it's taking up extra shifts if that's possible for you to do. If you are in a nine to five job, maybe it is trying to help out with extra jobs on the weekend. Maybe they're ad hoc handyman jobs or I don't know, maybe they're helping with market stalls on a Saturday. Could be quite a range of things that you could do outside of your nine to five only for a short period of time to earn some extra money. Uh, The other thing that I would personally do is assess what I currently own and what I can get rid of. For a lot of people that might be culling their wardrobe, potentially if they have high ticket items in there that they could part with. I often look at our furniture in our house. I'm like, do we need all of this? Can I sell any of it? Marketplace is a great avenue to make some quick cash of, of selling items. Uh, and then I guess the biggest thing is understanding what is available to you in terms of assistance with deposits, whether that is a guarantor loan, whether that might be, uh, you might revisit And of course, this is not financial advice. You need a financial advisor to help you with this, but it might be revisiting where your share portfolio is at and whether that could help contribute to your deposit, whether you need that towards the deposit. 
there's lots of different avenues, but more generally, there is a limit to how much you can save in a said period of time beyond, I guess, sacrificing a fair bit of your current lifestyle. Some people will do it. Some people have sacrificed 12 months of their life to be able to save like crazy and afford that deposit and get in to the market sooner. But other people, you know, want the balance of not changing their lifestyle too much and cruising along, saving their deposit and they will get there eventually, but it just takes time. And I'm sorry, there's no uh, silver bullet or a magic answer to get you that deposit sooner. It is a matter of time. Another question that Samuel has asked and Sammy has asked quite a few, but I will just answer this one because I think it's quite relevant, is how do you deal with real estate agents? I preface this with the fact that in my role as a buyer's advocate down here in Melbourne, the agents, the real estate agents to me are like colleagues. Okay, that's in a professional setting. When you are a general public buyer, and general public, I mean, you don't have representation, you're going in solo, and you are meeting multiple agents and they're dealing with you, I can tell you now it's no secret. It's not an industry secret or anything, but as soon as they see a first home buyer, they assume a lack of knowledge, which in some some cases it is true. There's a lack of knowledge there and it's unfair. Let's be honest. The agent is representing the vendor. They are paid and engaged by the vendor to get the highest price possible for their property. Their commission is solely reliant upon how much money can I get out of these buyers to ensure my vendor is willing to sell and uh, I guess as a result of that, be paid. You really, really need to keep that in mind. And don't get me wrong, there are some great agents out there who actually more work on the buying side, like they might be selling the property, but they're more buyer-driven than seller-driven. But at the end of the day, you need to remember who pays the bill. It's the vendor and that's who their alliance is too. So when you're dealing with real estate agents, I wouldn't be closed off because that actually can do a bit of damage along the way, but I would remain what I call neutral. Give the information that's required. Don't give them fake numbers or fake emails when they ask for them at the open home. They're there to help you to a degree in finding a property but I would always remember and have that little voice at the back of your head that the agent is engaged by the vendor. They do not have your best interests at heart necessarily. And the biggest thing that I would encourage you to do is to ensure you do your own research. Agents are covered by the fact that you cannot rely on their representations of the property. Even the floor plan has a little disclaimer down the bottom that says they take no responsibility for it being accurate Uh, and it cannot be relied upon as effectively being true. As a buyer, it is buyer beware. You do need to go in with caution. You do need to complete your own due diligence. And in an ideal world, you would have a buyer's advocate, a buyer's agent in your back pocket who can help you navigate all of this. If you can't, because I understand it's also a, a budget restraint for some people, at the very least, I think having potentially a clarity call with John or looking into the online resources within the My Millennial Money community. There's a first home buyer course in there as well. There's John's investing course. There's resources at your disposal that in respect to the amount of money you're about to spend on a property versus spend on um, some additional education is a no-brainer. 
I think it's really important to understand what due diligence you need to complete, which can sometimes be state-specific, and also to ensure that you have your wits about you. Uh, Agents will often show you the best part of the property. They will show you all the good features. They won't point out the negatives and they certainly have ways of marketing properties that can make them look better than they actually are. I would never ever encourage anybody to buy sight unseen because that is fraught with danger. Uh, At least have somebody you know go through the property and assess it for you if you can't physically be there yourself but do not rely on just the agent doing a video walkthrough because uh, they're going to be very biased as to what they show you and it's really important you get someone who is independent in that process. I'm going to flick to a question now that comes from my Instagram. I put a little post up and said, put your questions below. And Nicole Gaff has asked, when buying a property that is strata, what kind of questions should you ask for in due diligence? What are the red flags? Great question, Nicole. And a lot of first home buyers are buying into a strata property. Strata means that there is an overarching uh, body corporate that manages the, the block or the, I guess it is a block most of the time, block of units or the building. Um, strata means that you own the title of your property or your unit within the block, but there's common land. There's, you know, common hallways. There's the common driveway, Uh, even an entryway, there's parts of the property that you don't personally own, but you have an interest in, which is common property. And usually it's managed by what we know as a body corporate or an owner's corporation. When you are buying into a strata lot, and particularly when there's a lot of properties within that building, probably the biggest thing that you should do first is review the documents provided by the vendor to read the latest meeting minutes from their annual general meeting. Most of them have an AGM and they'll provide the most recent meeting minutes. In there, there's usually a header that says other business or other topics. And under that is usually where you find what's wrong with the property, whether it's maintenance, whether it's a noisy neighbor, whether it's someone who is not paying their fees on time. Those things are really important to be across. You don't want to be buying into a problem. Any foreseeable upcoming special levies would also be included at the time of the AGM. In addition to that, and certainly something that we do for clients is we actually call the body corporate and explain where someone who's interested in buying into the block, we just want to complete another level of due diligence and ensure that we're not missing anything. You know, since the last AGM, have there been any maintenance issues that have popped up that would spark a special levy? And if so, what might that look like? And have you got quotes for that yet? Speaking to the body corporate managers, most of the time, they're actually really helpful. Some of them will default and say, can you please send me an email? But don't be deterred by that. I've had some great email responses from the body corporate managers. And I think some of them are just taught to not give information out over the phone, like always document it. So don't be afraid to do that, even if it is a generic like info at or hello at, whatever it might be. Feel free to reach out to them. Most of the time, they're super helpful. If you can, it's always great to identify a neighbor in the block. You always get such good intel from neighbors, particularly neighbors who are owners in a strata block who will tell you the lay of the land and who lives where and who's noisy and who's not and uh, that sort of thing, really important. The biggest thing which has been evident 
quite a, quite a high risk item, I would say. In Victoria has been the combustible cladding. There are a number of apartment blocks that were built with the combustible cladding that needs to be rectified. And that could well spark a special levy that might not be itemised on the AGM yet. So that would also, in that case, involve speaking with the local council to see if the building has yet been assessed for the combustible cladding and if so, what stage is that assessment at? Um, have they been provided quotes to fix it or who's liable to do so? Um, you can never do too much due diligence when it comes to strata. Certainly the body corporate is the one stop, like the first stop you'd make in making inquiries and then certainly anything beyond that would be more so to do with what you can learn through the councils, the neighbours, uh, anyone who's maybe even rented in the block. If you do see a high turnover of properties in a block, it's not always cause for concern. Sometimes it's just the timing, uh, particularly when properties are built and everyone buys in off the plan and then the property's five years old. It's not uncommon that you see a sequence of people sell out at a similar time and it's usually just a life cycle of the block. However, Sometimes it can be problematic if multiple people are selling out uh, and you need to dig a bit deeper as to why that might be. But uh, don't always assume because there's a high number of people selling that there's a problem with a block. Sometimes it is just a matter of the cycle. Going to finish with one final question. And this question comes from Amber. And Amber has asked, are buyers advocates only for metro areas or are they popular in regional and country? That's a really great question, Amber, and certainly one that I think requires more education from the buyers advocate community. Buyers advocates work all across Australia. I would say they are more popular in places like Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane, but they actually do work all across the country. Probably the biggest thing if you are looking to have one on board, especially in regional, is to make sure that they are actually an area specialist, like they have track record of buying in the area, they know the area, maybe they've even lived there themselves before and they're across it um, to a degree that they can uh, communicate to you on value and price when things are underquoted or overquoted. But certainly a, a key piece of information when you're engaging an advocate is to check their track record. Where do they buy? What do they know? And who do they work with? There are certainly some that are more towards a specific type of market. They might only deal with $3 million plus purchases. And that's probably where people assume that advocates are only for really expensive purchases. Then there's other ones who work more so just with first home buyers or just with investors. So make sure you do your research. There are a lot more advocates coming through the pipeline. A lot of people who used to be a selling agent who have jumped the fence to the buying side, nothing wrong with that. They have good area knowledge and good intel on what happens on the other side of the fence. But to answer your question, Amber, advocates work all across Australia. And whilst there might be less choice in regional, you'll often find a regional advocate will cover a lot of ground within uh, said region, whereas metro areas, they're a bit more suburb specific or a certain corridor specific as to where they will go, largely based on the traffic, to be honest, and how long it takes them to get around. Uh, but certainly worth doing your research on that. Well, that does bring us to the end of today's episode. I must say it has been a challenge writing solo and I can't wait to be back next week with John, both of us together and certainly uh, mapping out 
the remainder of 2022 with some guests that we're keen to get on. If you have any recommendations for guests that you would like us to have on the show, feel free to reach out via the Facebook group or message us directly. If you follow us on socials on Instagram, John loves the Insta. I've actually seen John posting quite a few videos and reels of late. So if you're not following him, a lot of the stuff comes through his Solvare Wealth uh, page as well as Envisage, which is his buyer's agency. So feel free to reach out there or you can reach me as well. Just type in Emily Wallace and it will pop up. But I appreciate you jumping on board for the solo episode today. There's only so much we can cover in an episode as well. So hopefully it's given you some food for thought about the first home buyer process and getting ready to be a first home buyer and what it does involve. I am always keen to deep dive on particular topics. So always reach out and let us know what you want us to cover. But thanks for being a listener. I hope you have a great day ahead wherever you are in the country, wherever you are listening, whether you're poolside or you're driving a car or maybe you're on the train to work. Have a great day ahead or a great evening ahead. And next week, I'll be back with John. Until then. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education. That's why we make this podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next steps. I've created the Solvair Online Academy, open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors, where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space. And if you're a first home buyer, I have the course just for you. Everything from pre-approval all the way through into your settlement and everything in between. How to place an offer, how to bid at auction, what to even look for at an open home and what questions to ask the agents. It's all covered in my online course. Follow the links in the show notes to sign up and get started today. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.